This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. Tonight's episode, we are discussing the life of Christ through the book of Mark, a historical and semiotic perspective. So as hosts of this podcast, we strive to provide you with relevant and a compassionate worldview framework that'll help guide you through life. And we believe that in order to achieve this, it's important to get our own house in order, looking at our own spirituality, our own relationships, our own approach of how we show up in the world. So this means that learning to love and care for ourselves in different ways is essential before we can fully love and care for others in a way that we were meant to do and to be. We encourage a worldview that's built on the principles of Christ, yes, and in this episode we're going to examine the life of Christ through a clear and honest lens. So by doing so, we hope to offer insights and perspectives that will help you in your own journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. So there's a couple of things that we're going to assure you in tonight's episode. We are not going to be fabricating anything. And many have done this. Many have taken the Gospels in the Bible and what we would consider divine or sacred literature, and they've literally been misinformed or fabricated ideas that would support their own confessions. So we're not in the market to do that. We don't desire to make anything up, and we provide, we're going to provide an honest and authentic perspective on our examination of this book. So in previous episodes, we've discussed the potential pitfalls of just simply deconstructing. We need to be able to construct as we deconstruct, moving towards a new understanding as we begin to move away from our misunderstanding. So it's important to avoid getting stuck in a cycle of perpetuating the same patterns of behavior that we sought to change in the first place. So instead, we need fresh perspective. We need a new framework to construct healthy habits and behaviors and new spirituality. So that's why the Constructionist Podcast is a space for exploring new ideas, presenting practical thoughts, presenting new theologies for our daily life in a new way. And we aim to provide a platform for honest and authentic discussions on relevant topics. So the three of us don't necessarily agree on everything. And so we have open discussions where you might even hear a disagreement between the three of us that one might agree with one thing and the other might subscribe to another. And that's why as listeners, we just desire to do this live in a purposeful and meaningful way so that you can get an inside look on what it's like to do theology, what it's like to do spirituality. And so in tonight's episode, we're excited to share our best attempt at exploring practical ways to apply these ideas and theologies to our daily life. So we're going to look at the life of Christ through the book of Mark. We do have those scriptures that are going to be presented to you on the screen. So you don't need any books. You don't need any, maybe a pen and a paper if you wanted to take some notes. That that would be helpful. And we also want you to interact with us. So submitting a question, submitting a thought is always welcome. So if you enjoy 
the podcast. We desire for you to engage with us. We believe that through interaction and discussion with listeners like you, we can continue to learn ourselves and grow together. So we value your feedback. We value your questions, your ideas, and we're excited to build a, a, a community around a shared exploration, what we call a communal hermeneutic of perspective. So don't hesitate to reach out. We do take those privately. You can submit them on our DMs, and then we can take those and then filter through, vet through those, and then answer those questions in real time. Or through the week, you can also throw some questions up, and we will be happy to respond to you um, when you do so in, in a, in a uh, respectable amount of time. So if you enjoy the Constructionist podcast and want to uh, support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or show notes on the social media platform you're listening to. Visit our Give page, and your support will enable us to continue producing high-quality content like this. All right, my guests tonight, Sharia. Master's in Theology, Jake, Master's in Theology. I have my doctorate in Semiotics and Leadership and Theology. So what is really interesting about this topic through an honest level discussion, the Book of Mark, as far as we get tonight, I hope it's far. Um, other topics we haven't necessarily been experts on. We've just had musing conversations, noodling around topics and such. But tonight's book, uh, the Book of Mark and tonight's topic, we think that we are a little bit more um, learned, a little bit more educated. We're able to do a little bit more with the material, and we hope that it is enjoyable for you. So good evening, Shreya and Jake. How are you? Hey. Jake, are you there? I am. It's a little bit lagging behind on my end, but I am. I am here. Very good. All right. So let's start reading. We're actually going to skip forward to uh, uh, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read. Last week, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. And this week, we wanted to couple that with the feeding of the 4,000. The feeding of the 4,000 seems like an extra story, seems like an extra feeding. It is. It does have a different metaphor. It does have a different, I guess, message to it. And so let's let's pop up um, the the feeding of the five thousand, the very last few scriptures of the feeding of the five thousand in Mark six. Isn't it six or he five? May, he may not have those, Kevin. So why don't you just go ahead? Oh, and, I'm and sorry. Read. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and read those out of. Uh, my Bible here and just give me a second to look it up. Uh, I have it right here if you want me to. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, go ahead and read about the 12 baskets for me. There it is. He directed disciples to see all the people in groups as they are having a banquet on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties he took the five loaves and two fishes, broke the bread to heaven. <clears throat> Later on, everyone ate until they were full. They filled 12 baskets with leftover pieces of bread and fish. About 5,000 had eaten. Jake, we lost your voice. Are you still there with us? Yes. <laughs> 
Okay. Not sure what's going on with our lagging tonight. That's unfortunate. But uh, but hopefully we can get to the bottom of that. So what I want then is to pull up Mark chapter 8 now, starting in verse 1. And we're going to go through the feeding now of the 4,000. Definitely related and similar. But we want to talk through these two stories um, just kind of simultaneously and look at the differences, especially these baskets and the represent or the metaphor that we see. So in Mark chapter 8, verse 1, it says, In those days there was another large crowd with nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for the crowd because they have been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they won't have enough strength to travel, for some have come a long distance. <clears throat> His disciples responded, how can anyone get enough food in this wilderness to satisfy these people? Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? They said, seven loaves. He told the crowd to sit on the ground. He took the seven loaves, gave thanks, broke them apart, and gave them to his disciples to distribute. And they gave the bread to the crowd. They also had a few fish. He said a blessing over them, then gave them to the disciples to hand out also. They ate until they were full. They collected seven baskets full of leftovers. This was a crowd of about 4,000 people. Jesus then sent them away and they got in the boat and went to a different region. So, so this is a very important scripture because it's been debated. Is this scripture the same as the feeding of the 5,000? It sounds similar. Is this just a repeat addition? We left off a thousand people. So it's a perfect rounded number. It doesn't matter anyway. There's been a lot of thoughts around these scriptures. And remember something very important. The book of Mark, um, I believe, is a retelling or a signaling of the Exodus. So you have this new crowd, this new audience that is listening or receiving this material. And to signal different important thoughts, ideas, even though it's given to mostly a Gentile crowd, it is very still Jewish in its presentation, Jewish in its numbering, and also in its story, because the thought is that the Jewish faith is the foundation or Christianity comes from those thoughts. And so you can't, you, you can never get away from Jewish tradition when it comes to uh, Christianity. It was said to be fulfilled, like the law and the prophets were fulfilled, but you can't get away from it and shouldn't get away from it. You shouldn't deny it. It's there. So when you read the feeding of the 4,000, there's some signaling, really important signaling that I see, and we can debate about it and think about it. Um, the first is the number three. In Hebrew um, and in Hebrew culture, three, seven, 12, 40, a thousand, these numbers, I'm not talking about numerology and trying to look for the end of time and all that kind of stuff by calculating numbers. What I'm talking about is just the signaling of perfection and creation and fulfillment and wholeness. And so Hebrew writers or the Hebrew culture would use 
different signaling like the fig tree or the almond tree or water like every time you see water there's some form of salvation going on the deep the darkness of the deep of the weather some kind of evil going on so these metaphors these pictures in the hebrew language actually if you understand the context and understand the 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 uh the bigger semiotic meaning to bring meaning to it there's very rich things here so this they were with jesus for three days it's not just this random number was it three and a half was it four there is a perfect amount of time that these if you throw that up there rob again you can see this number that they spent this time with jesus jesus called his disciples i feel sorry for the crowd because they've been with me for three days with nothing to eat so they've listened to this this three days he gives them bread he gives them fish and they collect it in seven baskets full of leftovers. So Jake, take it from here. Take us back to the manna scene, the Moses scene. Take us back to that scene and kind of explicate that for us. Is am I am I lagging right now or am I good? You're good. It seems like you're good. Okay. Well, I'll ask Rob to throw out that that image one more time again. I promise you. If you look at what his disciples ask him, how can we get enough food in the wilderness to satisfy these people? You can take it down now, Rob. Um, when you read the Exodus narrative and Israelites or the Hebrew people cross the Reed Sea into the, into the desert, into the wilderness, they are posing the same question to Moses. And what happens then is a is the manna story the, the the bread comes down from heaven every morning like dew on the grass and the man word manna means what is it we don't know um, and then also in the evening time quail would come out and they would capture the quail and they never took more than they had need and so they had to take the exact amount that they needed nothing could be left or rot and so they were very purposeful in what they took and it was never out of scarcity or out of surplus um it was just out of out of what they had need to do or scarcity to gain surplus um if you look at the story it matches it fairly well uh jesus crosses over the ocean earlier mm -hmm. is in this land is in a is in with the people for a certain amount of days and then and then a miracle happens to feed the entire the entire 4,000 people. Um, yeah, I think it is, it's still a story of, of hospitality, of opening each other up, that, that those who had surplus only took what they needed and then passed around what they didn't, so much so that in the end, well, seven, seven baskets were, were filled. The first time it was 12, and this time it was seven. So that idea of seven baskets is uh, what's the scripture there back in the wilderness. They collected these seven baskets as well. So it's like a fulfillment of, of, well, like, like for example, there's fulfillment that you see between the old Testament, and the new Testament, like the second Pentecost. So the first Pentecost is right at Moses and the cleft of the rock. This, the, the, that God Not passes by, 
that yeah. God passes by Moses. And then when he comes down from that mountain, he sees that there's this golden calf and, th and give me the number 3000. Yeah. 3000 are killed that day. So there's a slaughtering of 3000 people. And then is it 3000? I'm, I'm losing my number there. What is it? I'm not sure. I don't know right now. Well, then it's Acts 2. It's the same number. Yeah. 3,000 were saved that day. I think it's 3,000. Yeah, I'd have to look it up really quick. I'm just speaking off the top of my head. Sorry. So then, so then in Acts 2, you see the same number when Peter at the day of Pentecost is speaking and the Holy Spirit is upon them that the same number is saved that day that was killed that day. So you see then in the manna, in the Old Testament, they collected these seven baskets, meaning that this seven days of creation, total fulfillment, total wholeness is fed or is provided for that we see the whole group is provided for. In the feeding of the 5,000, if I use my semiotic tools and I look at the feeding of the 5,000, you have 12 baskets. Now the, other, the, the 12 that we know are the 12 tribes of Israel like Jake was alluding to. So we have this 12 tribes of Israel. So the provision is for the 12 tribes, but seven means the complete of creation. And so now we have seven baskets, meaning the provision is for everyone. So not just we have the 12 tribes. Now we have the seven baskets. Seven is for everyone. So this next feeding shows that the gospel, the good news, Jesus and, and God's presence is not just for this select group, it's for the masses, it's for the people, it's for all of creation. And so you can actually just jump right into universalism at that point. But honestly, you just look at, you look at just the, sim that's low hanging fruit when it comes to, you know, numbers and comparing numbers back and forth. Where you look at Old Testament concepts and New Testament concepts, you go, well, they're, they're saying the same thing. We have bread, we have manna, we have baskets filled. These, these yeah. are metaphors and signaling and pictures and, and illustrations to signal the people like this is a fulfillment. This is a bigger thing than just, and these stories have always been a bigger thing than just fish and bread. So, oh, yes. I mean, all, we, all we, we reduce it to fish, bread and miracle when when really there has to be multiple different types of reading. And it's not wrong to say it's fish, bread, right. and miracle. Sure. Um, there just is, is more to the story than, than what's just at first glance. Yeah. I think it's, it's called, uh, it's called God of the gaps. Oh, so yeah. the, yeah. the idea is that when, when we in our scientific method answer a question that we've always had, we have replaced God. So like evolution creates like uh, traded God out there. And then, so we, we have removed God from that seat. Um, other gods, the gaps are like, how did, how did creation even start? Big bang theory or mm -hmm. other, other right. ideas on there, panspermia, um, things that we don't understand and can't understand. We put God there instead of just sitting in wonder, we have to put God there. And so we say miracle immediately 
in this because we don't want to look any deeper. We don't want to like see how how does this match up to ancient texts? How does this match up to how how would an ancient reader read this? Right. Right. I I don't think that they would jump straight to miracle. They would ju- jump straight to a story that they have heard every single year of their life around the same time. And even if you were a Gentile, you would rub, rub shoulders. And if you were in a Christian community that was predominantly Gentile, you definitely would have at least heard it or been around it at some point. And the more we put God in those gaps of what we don't understand, it has to be a God thing. Mm-hmm. The more we'll be let down, and the more we have to defend God's position instead of and putting God somewhere that God never intended to be at. Right. Some things are just plain, but very few things are plain when it comes to scripture. I, I saw this meme the other day that the Bible is clear, and you got this like anglican priest with all these books behind him so you know if you just look at my (laughs) my office here you can see the bible is clear really okay so so then why do i have all these books behind me it's it's kind of like it's i don't want to reduce i mean since jerry springer just passed away we you know pay homage to him um but that was a very difficult show to figure out. You had to look at the nuance, the slit, like the, the extreme behavior that, that Jerry Springer brought on his show obviously meant something deeper than that was going on in the show. Cause so many people connected to it and watched it, maybe just for entertainment, violence and entertainment. I had no idea, but that people were connecting to it. And, and so I don't want to reduce the Bible down to the Jerry Springer show. I'm trying to understand the Jerry Springer show. But honestly, that's a little bit like, okay, we have these stories and it's, there's some violence and there's some life and there's some crying and there's some beauty and there's some big bangs and there's some creation and then you got a temple and then you have a crucifixion and, and you have some whipping and then you have some, I mean, you know, tomb scenes and, you know, Mark's naked in this book at a certain point. What does that mean? And then we have the church and then we have reprimanding the church. I mean, it just seems like it's, well, it's, can I be honest? It's like, it's like a daytime talk show. You're just like looking at this going, well, there's a lot of life going on here. And it's like, how do I understand it? I got to get into their life. Yeah. I have to figure out how to get into their life. Yeah. Um, sometimes hard to do. What's the other thing? If if anyone actually read the Bible, it'd be a banned book. Oh, yeah. There's a lot more going on, I think, than most people. You certainly wouldn't put it in children's hands. Shouldn't even be in mine. <laughs> so, like, wow. the, so the idea is uh, there was a Catholic priest who was on a walk one day. And a boulder rolled down the hill and almost killed him. Okay. And there was two explanations for it. One, you had demons and gargoyles pushing the rock down, trying to crush William of Ockham. Okay. Or 
enough rain came that washed soil array away and the rock just rolled down the hill because of gravity because that's what rocks do and so occam's razor is that the simplest answer is probably the main answer right okay miracleizing everything is not the easiest answer right right and so how do we look for other easier answers is important mm -hmm. not saying the miracles can't happen but there can be different there can be different ways this narrative makes sense well it's kind of like the prophet readings the prophet readings you can read in three different ways so when you go to isaiah or one of the prophets just open up the book start reading it you can read it in one like with isaiah he's talking about isaiah and then the second reading could be he's talking about jesus and then the third reading is he's talking about the church so so you can read like Isaiah in three different lenses. Um, not any one of them is more correct than the other. Uh, I just think that that's the way we need to read the Bible. Yeah, you, this, this is a miraculous story. And it is a fulfillment. And it has to do with salvation. You can't negate one or the other. But your version of like the feeding of the 5,000, Jake, seems a little like this is where it's like, oh, that sounds like socialist. You know, we can't go there. We're sharing inequality and all these things. So we can't talk about equality and sharing. We, you know, it's too socialist. So, so we sometimes, because of our political biases, we negate certain readings. I've, I've watched it done. It's just, it's kind of sad when like they we sold actually, their possessions and gave everything to the poor, those that were in need. We actually changed the text to match our political right. ideologies. And if anyone wants to and see it one day. And also our confessions too, our confessions as well. Our confessions changed, our, our, our Bibles, what we have in our hands change because of our political um, bent. Right. But also our social bend too. So like if we have a confession that has a certain view of women, then Junia turns to Junius and we can't, or Junius turns back to Junia. You know, like we just sit there and like try to change even people's names or like what the Pope did a lot, like 500s, Pope Gregory took all the Marys and made them all prostitutes, you know, in scripture. So now we think all the Marys and all the women show up and, like Mary Magdalene, where nowhere in scripture does it say that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. She actually traveled around with, and, and my kind of quasi, not joke, but joke, not joke, is if Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, who was she prostituting with? Because she was with the disciples the, like literally the entire time. She traveled with them more than anybody traveled with them and spoken more than most of the apostles so so to say that mary magdalene was a prize is just some made-up thing so so in order to like bolster our confession or our social bends that we have or our social angers or our social oppressions we change the text and we need to get back to that raw form of looking at the text 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 brugamon it's all about the text. Look at the text. Get deep into the text. The Bible's clear, Sharia. It's clear. 
we have to get into that text and dig around to look at those readings. Do you have anything to say about that, Shreya? You've been, you've been musing. I, I feel it coming. Um, so when we talked about feeding the 5,000, um, the, the miracle was people sharing. Um, and I think that's, it's the same miracle here. Um, but I kind of think that's the theme. So we kind of pulled this passage out of, um, out of where it was placed so that we could compare those two stories side by side. But if we look mm -hmm. at the surrounding stories a little bit before feeding the 4,000 and a little bit after feeding the 4,000, I think that same kind of theme starts to emerge that it's about community caring for each other. Let's have a dream. Okay, well, let's get into it. Let's go back because we got to get okay. there. Yeah. Um, we're walking on water. Let's walk on some water. So that's Remember 645. That slide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would you like me to read? Go for it. Okay. Right then, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake toward Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. After saying goodbye to them, Jesus went up onto a mountain to pray. Evening came, and the boat was in the middle of the lake, but he was alone on the land. His disciples, he saw his disciples struggling. They were trying to row forward, but the wind was blowing against them. Very early in the morning, he came to them, walking on the lake. He intended to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they screamed. Seeing him was terrifying to all of them. Just then, he spoke to them, be encouraged. It's me. Don't be afraid. He got into the boat and the wind settled down. His disciples were so baffled they were beside themselves. That's because they hadn't understood about the loaves. In their minds, their minds had been closed so that they resisted God's ways. When Jesus and his disciples had crossed the lake, they landed at Gennesaret, anchored the boat and came ashore. People immediately recognized Jesus and ran around that whole region, bringing sick people on their mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went, villages, cities, or farming communities, they would place the sick in the marketplaces and beg him to allow them to touch even the hem of his clothing. Everyone who touched him was healed. So throw back that because there's some signaling in there that I want to go over. Number one, he crosses the lake again. So we're going back and forth over to these different areas. I don't think that that's necessarily by accident. The boat's in the middle of the lake. He's alone on the land. Disciples are struggling. Wind is can blowing. We, huh? Can we just take a moment to laugh that like, Jesus sees them struggling and he just lets them struggle all night. Oh. And yeah. then he's going to pass by them on the lake and not even get in the boat. <laughs> you know, I was reading a book this week and the chapter was very difficult. It's called, it's, it's uh, Caputo's um, Radical <laughs> Theology. And um, it's pretty radical. And he talks about the Bible being about the spooky things. And I just love that, that there's a lot in the Bible about things that spook us. Mm -hmm. And, and so a lot of our spirituality is built upon spooky things 
or our counter theology. So the devil, the devil's a spooky guy, you know, um, mm -hmm. lives in Middle Earth with pitchfork and horns and a red cape where people burn alive for eternity. My gosh. Anyway, so that's like a spooky thing. Um, so, of course, that has to have a counter narrative. So heaven becomes, you know, I'm sitting on a cloud in a diaper playing a harp as a baby. So that's the like the counter or the vice versa, you know, narrative that we have to have, you know, a binary <laughs> kind of existence of heaven and hell. Um, I don't I don't even well, just to address that really quick, I don't even believe in that version of hell in any way. Um, but just to bring up that that's like the spooky thing. So now we're talking about spooky things and Jesus walking on the water. There's there's a couple of spooky things. He's the spooker. <laughs> I love that. Jesus is the spooky thing. <laughs> Go ahead and throw that scripture up there again. Right. They were all Seeing terrified. Him was terrifying. <laughs> I find that hilarious. Be encouraged. It's me. Don't be afraid. I mean, come on. If you saw, if all of a sudden we were out fishing, like, any of us would be but like if we're all out there if we're all out what would we be doing in a boat texting and talking to our friends that aren't there i don't know so <laughs> if we were all out on a boat and someone was walking on water that would be spooky yeah i mean that would be a scary thing so that's first jesus is the spooky thing but then also of course we have this metaphor of the deep what comes out of the deep? Of course, the devil's in there. I mean, when I swim in an open lake, the devil is under the water. The devil's for still sure. under the water for me. Big fish <laughs> are going to eat my toes. Um, so when you're out in the middle of the lake, oh, and especially when you're like in the sludge, you know some giant crustacean-type animal is going to tear off your limbs out of A crustacean, whatever. Exoskeleton animal go. is going to come out. <laughs> of the sludge slime and eat me the spooky so so they had this like theology of the spooky things in the depth of the water that's why leviathan is in the water um i had a thought about that though so earlier on i can't remember if it was chapter four or chapter five or chapter six um mm. but jesus sends the disciples out and he gives them authority over the demons and then yeah. we're in chapter six and Jesus sends his disciples off in a boat crossing the deep where the demons live. And I, I kind of think maybe that's. Oh. Talk about spooky things, Paisley. <laughs> Is it done or should we just, we move on? Oh, okay. okay. All right. So, so yeah, um, so, so Chuck just, Chuck just said spider crabs. It's true. There's like these little, I mean, there's things to eat us, scary things. The another idea that we have with with this is Jesus walking over chaos, and so as we mm -hmm. as we talk often about about water crossing over water, going through water, um, how this is a retelling of creation again and again and again, right. even hearkening to Exodus, which Exodus is a hearkening of creation again and again and again. Mm -hmm. Right. The 
um, Jesus walking on water shows the dominance over the chaos, over the deep. And so if you, if you crack your Bible open in Genesis 1, it said that the Spirit of God's hovered over the, over the chaos, over the right. deep. And so I think that's, that is mirroring that text. Um, this passage can also be translated that Jesus was walking alongside the lake not on the water, but next to the water. So like when I walk on the seashore or walk on the walk on the ocean, mm-hmm. I'm walking alongside of the ocean. Um and Jesus is gonna pass them by. But it doesn't quite make sense. People will will, will negate it to that. Um you have to give a so little So there's a the, there's a there's a thought that Jesus what you're saying is some people don't believe Jesus was walking on the water. That this is that, alongside the language could say it's alongside the water. It could be translated that Jesus was walking alongside of the lake, right? Okay. Um, yet the story wouldn't make much sense at that point, and I think to to take the miracle out of this one is not is not the purpose of the text. Right. Um, this one's to show superiority and dominance over chaos. Yeah, I think in our progressive looks, sometimes we try to humanize or try to make this work in our physical reality when in actuality, it's not the purpose. You don't have to do that with these texts, mm-hmm. that there's some greater semiotic version that, that can emerge out of this. Because if you're searching for historicity or the historical narrative, Mark wasn't written, I don't think, in a linear fashion. Oh, no. I think, I'm sure maybe maybe the deaths at the end, that's easy. Births at the beginning, okay. Mm-hmm. Baptism. But anywhere in between, it doesn't matter which order it goes into. It just, the story is more important than, it's like we talk about the life of Pi, that the the story, whatever is the better story is the one that wins. Right. And remember in like the first couple of episodes of Mark, we talked about it's not written in a chronological form. It's a chirological form. So you have just moments that are that don't have to be connected or in a chronological way. They could just be completely disconnected and just placed. Um, Probably thematically connected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you were saying um, in. Mm chapter eight the stories before and after or the stories before kind of set the stage for this theme of sharing generosity and the common theme of of giving Mm -hmm. you know what i love about this story i want to preach i want to preach this one day when i'm really cantankerous and and maybe just got a fire under my belly you know fire in my belly is get up and preach some crowds just need to be dismissed (laughs) (laughs) that's when you were reading it i thought you know while he dismissed the crowd i just love that wording it actually in the original language he told them to go away some crowds just need to go away i just love that not go away permanently. Just take a break. 
right? We're going to go walk on some water for a while. Some crowds just need to be dismissed. Maybe that's me. Maybe I'm the crowd that needs to be dismissed. I don't know. Sounds like a benediction. <laughs> no way. Get out of here. Some crowds just need to be dismissed. Um, do you think that this be encouraged, it's me, don't be afraid, do you think that connects with anything? Not sure. The, uh, I mean, I definitely could point to things, but um, I think it had just more to do with chaos hmm. and the calming of chaos. I'm just doing a quick little look of fear not, don't be afraid. It's kind of take courage, it is I. Yeah. So the so Paul especially mm -hmm. and other writers of his time um would take snippets from the Old Testament and put them into their writings and just piecemeal things together. Things that we would never be able to get get by today like just like oh, taking change the scriptures it Jesus breaks all the rules that they teach you in seminary <laughs> right yes. and so like the, the like paul proof texts himself the entire time and and out of context and and right. so it's it's not so far-fetched to say that mark is doing somewhat of the same thing narratively with stories um, probably didn't have the education that, that Paul did to be able to quote Isaiah and actually mishmash words together to make them say what he wanted to say. It's called halakhic interpretation. Um, right. And he was, so the idea is that, is that it's, it's a, this is that and pointing back to. Um, but we need to understand as, as readers that that Jesus is not mentioned in the Old Testament. The Messiah is a Messiah figure that's happened multiple times. I'd have other like prophecies around this person, but Jesus did not show up in the Old Testament. Just shows up in the New Testament in spooky ways. Spooky ways. <laughs> spooky ways. <laughs> Let's get some healing. Let's go on to Mark 653. Is that me? Sure. Uh, it was on the slide I read. Yeah, let's uh, let's do a reread okay. of it, and then um, and see where we go. Help me out there, Shrey. Is around the end when Jesus and his disciples. Yeah. Uh, Mark six fifty three. Oh, the numbering is not. That's there. it. Yeah, I'll read oh, it. When Jesus and his disciples had crossed the lake, they landed at Gennesaret, anchored the boat, and came ashore. People immediately recognized Jesus and ran around that whole region, bringing sick people on their mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went, villages, cities, or farming communities, they would place the sick in the marketplaces and beg him to allow them to touch even the hem of his clothing. Everyone who touched him was healed. So again, the fringe of his cloak, that's, that would be the identity. They touched his identity. They touched him. Um, do we see anything in here besides, again, crossing over the water? Well, this is the miracle, right? Right. Right. 
Now, to bring emphasis, though, there there is something to the people going to Jesus for the miracle. Um, I would say that that sickness and um, disease and some of these uh, some of these accusations like people were under an accusation if they were sick or had a disease and so like Sharia said I don't know maybe three weeks ago Sharia you said that when Jesus heals someone it's more it's not necessarily just the healing they they they, they touched his cloak and they were healed and the leprosy fell off of them basically that's what mm-hmm. we sometimes think that the healing is for it's a healing from our ailments because I feel sick. Um, yeah, there's times where I've gotten really sick uh, just the other week and I'm like, okay, God, I just I just need to be healed. I, I have a lot to do and I need to be healed. Um, but this is more these metaphors of healing, this illustration of healing is more removing people's barriers to community and to mm-hmm. inclusion. And so a lot of the the well, Old Testament and New Testament thinking is people with disease had sin like in their generational line that the the sins of their parents and grandparents and great grandparents and such someone sinned in the line and they ended up sick. And so the sickness was a representation of some kind of sin. So they became untouchable. They became outside. They were put at the gates. They were removed from community. They couldn't transact in the marketplace at the same times as others. And so, or even at all. So they would end up just begging at the gates. Um, This is more about removing barriers. And when we can help people remove barriers, we're actually exercising healing. We're actually doing that same type of healing. Any thoughts on that version or those ideas? Uh, Yeah, that's it. Restoring people back to community. So how do we do that today? Like what's a, what's a application there? Well, I mean, this is another situation where people are bringing sick people to be healed. Um, So there's already that, um, that relationship um that other people are bringing people to jesus they're supporting people in need um jake did you have a thought there um a couple things uh so in numbers you have the story of the snake lifted up, the bronze snake lifted up, and anyone who casted their vision upon the snake would be healed. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of other mass healings in the Old Testament like that, and I can't think of many. Um, but even this, like you could even look into, is this a foreshadowing of, of Jesus being crucified? Mm. The, the idea is that whoever touched, looked upon, shadow fell over, like in Peter's day, that the hem of the cloak touched mm-hmm. them the tassels moved over them they would be healed if they looked upon Jesus with faith right and so um 
could be tied to that. I don't know. I could, I could, I could go with that, but why not? Um, so the whole snake, the snake on a pole, not the doctor's association. That's something out of Zeus, which is another, another story from their day and why those two are so closely similar. Uh, the idea is that it's more about the position of the person, I think, and not Jesus. Right. And that, how do you, how do, how do the people around them break barriers? Like Jesus wasn't breaking the barriers as we see, like, like people actually had to take them, take them to him. Mm. Um, the people like tearing the roof off. There was some, but yeah, the tearing the roof off of the house and lowering them down so that they could be healed. The, in the right place at the right time, the, their friends coming, their family moving them closer. The, how we do that now, we talked about this a little bit this morning in, in our group early that truly there's, there are systems in place yeah. that keep the poorest of poor, poor. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, brother Bruce was with us in the morning talks about how the, the number one debt over all in all of his, uh, houseless friends is medical bills yeah. mm-hmm. and medical bills can make a lean so heavy on your life that you will have to pay it off before you get a, your license, your driver's but license. It, yeah. Your driver's a, license, a lean against your driver's license. Yeah. But in order to get a, to get a job, you have to have a license right. in order to pay off your bills. Proof of ID, you, have, yeah. you have to have, well, I mean, really you, you need some, like to make it easier on yourself. Right. You need something like that. Proof of ID. Um, so there's all these, these systems of the press and to, to keep people, the poorest of poor, poor. Right. I and found so, that conversation interesting this morning that, you know, most of our, most of our attitude towards houseless or those that have barriers to community, let's just call them barriers to community. Just like, just like the scene that we see in Mark six, um, towards the end, there's lots of people with barriers to community in, in, let's just say our United States and the Northwest and houselessness is a barrier to community. No matter what you think of it, no matter your judgment of it, if you can't, if you, you know, like have a strong opinion of it, it's a barrier to community. That person has layers of poverty stacked on them that they have to sift through or get the help to sift through or follow a system that works them through levels of poverty. Um, That could be you know, something that is completely out of their control. Mm-hmm. But because we have means that is within our control. So he gave the example, Bruce, Pastor Bruce gave us the example of working with houseless communities where medical bills are their greatest debt, which is a great barrier to community. And so somebody, you know, has a surgery or they get some you know, something wrong and they just have to have a simple surgery because of medical insurance, the lack thereof, or low medical insurance, they go into the hospital, only a certain amount is paid for, then they're ending up with a, 
you know, $4,000 medical bill, which might not sound like a lot to some, it's a large amount to me. And it's an enormous amount to somebody that has layers of poverty. So how do they get $4,000 paid off? How then $1,000 is attached to their driver's license? So just to emphasize what Jake is talking about, there's layers and barriers to community using Sharia's language. And I think that in the ushering in of the year of Jubilee, how, G how Jesus was um, ushering this in and feeling a threat, the healing on the cloak um, definitely could be just very easily tied to all debts are paid, land goes back to the original owner, there's an abundance, there's enough for everybody and the releasing of people's barriers to salvation, to community and to salvation both. Yeah, so like that, those elements specifically would be debt of sin specifically. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. those debts are being paid. Right. I think we should go on to tradition. Ooh, can I, yeah, can I say something that I think is gonna tie in before we move oh, on? Of course. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about how, um, how there are other barriers to community too. Like if you don't have to rely on others to get your needs met, then you're not embedded in community either. Um, like I was thinking about, um, you know, cooking dinner and you realize you don't have something you need and none of us really need to, you know, go next door to borrow a cup of sugar anymore. Right. Because we can just hop in our car and we can go to the store and we can get it ourselves. And we would feel silly popping in on our neighbor and asking for a cup of sugar because they also know we can go to the store and go get that. Um, so not having those relationships in place is also a barrier. And I think we see that um, kind of mirrored with the Pharisees, with the scribes, they were the elite of society and didn't need to depend on community in the same way. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so two of us, a part of this group attended the Scott the painter Scott Erickson's live performance in downtown Portland. Uh, and I can tell you that the church, because I've been a pastor of a church and several churches over the years, the church kind of is its own um, demon. It creates its own demons many times. And, and how that has happened is through judgment where we have judged those that don't act just like us. And so just a general statement, we do, we judge anyone who just doesn't act just like us. Mm -hmm. And that's a barrier. We put a barrier up to community. So you have to like, and, and the older sometimes the church is, the higher that wall is of entry, where now I have to subscribe to totally this established confession and this theology that I have to, that I don't understand that I'm in one class for three hours to try to understand and I have to agree to this confession. 
in order to be a part of this community. That's a huge barrier for many, many people. Um, when Jesus was all along removing those barriers, saying, wait a minute, mm -hmm. you know, and picking people up literally off the ground and talking to the other. So the church is its own demon sometimes because of judgment and we create these walls and, and entry points. And so how do we remove the barriers of, of, of community? And that's through um, acceptance, through acknowledgement, through aff affirmation, through welcoming, gratitude towards, you know, others, that they're human beings, and also hospitality. So we reach out to others to bring them into community, just being hospitable first. Um, what I really found interesting in the Scott Erickson live performance is Scott Erickson in and of himself is, is pretty much what I can tell is just a Christian guy who's a painter um, and he paints beautiful pictures like stations of the street. You can go to scotterickson.com or scottthepainter.com or whatever. Just look him up online and you can find his stuff. Beautiful stuff. And he does it in a very abstract way, in a very, um, very different way. And of course, his live performance is very different. And so it's very, uh, it's very audience participation. He has passed out these questions beforehand to certain people and they're supposed to answer the question during the live performance and so he'll call the number and he's like and number one said and then you answer the question what i learned that night is here i am in a bar right it's a theater but it's a bar and and in this live performance with i don't know how many people were there jake Couple, couple hundred. hundred, maybe a yeah. couple hundred, like maybe like a hundred people down on the floor and a hundred people up in the balcony, maybe just a kind of a small crowd um, for what this was. And everyone's just there and and hanging out and eating really bad pizza and hot dogs and beer and just kind of like just joining in, listening to the literally a gospel message. I mean, by the end, this guy is literally sharing a Christ-centered message, way different than you would expect, way from different abstract angles that you wouldn't even guess were coming. And the questions that were answered showed me that every single walk of life that was, that could afford a ticket. So let's word it that way. That could afford a ticket. So let's say every walk of life in the middle class that you could imagine expressed that they were there through these questions. The reason why I say that is because the church is known for who is our target market, young middle-class families, right? That only act a certain and express themselves a certain way. So even in our notorious versions of target market, I sound like I'm some corporate guy, but even in our attitude towards target market, when it comes to who are we going to capture in the church and evangelize into the church, we've excluded even most of that target market. You know, if you just look at the church as a corporate entity, we've excluded most of the customers. So 
So it's really our own demons through judgment that have done that. Uh, we just judge people's lives to the point we throw up huge barriers. So how do you release those barriers through affirmation, acceptance, and and welcoming, being hospitable towards others? And that's where we're going into. Let's let's quickly, because uh, I talked too long there. Let's quickly go into um, followers of tradition. Mark seven. Should I read this one? Go for it. This one. Okay. Why not? That's twenty three verses. Wow, I picked like the longest one. The Pharisees and some legal experts from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They saw some of his disciples eating food with unclean hands. They were eating without first ritually purifying their hands through washing. The Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat without first washing their hands carefully. This is a way of observing the rules handed down by the elders. Upon returning from the marketplace, they don't eat without first immersing themselves. They observe many other rules that have been handed down, such as the washing of cups, jugs, pans, and sleeping mats. Seems reasonable. So the Pharisees and legal... It doesn't say that in the text. So the Pharisees and legal experts asked Jesus, why are your disciples not living according to the rules handed down by the elders, but instead eat food with ritually unclean hands. He replied, Isaiah really knew what he was talking about when he prophesied about you hypocrites. He wrote, this people, on, the, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is empty since they teach instruction that are human words. You ignore God's commandment while holding on to rules created by humans and handed down to you. Jesus continued, Clearly you are experts at rejecting God's commandments in order to establish these rules. Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and the person who speaks against the father or mother will certainly be put to death. But you say, If you tell your father or mother everything I'm expect expected to contribute to you, is Corbin, that is a gift I'm giving to God, then you are no longer required to care for your father and mother. In this way, you do away with God's word in favor of the rules handed down to you, which you pass on to others. And you do a lot of other things just like that. Then Jesus called the crowd again and said, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing outside of a person can enter and contaminate a person in God's sight. Rather, the things that come out of a person contaminate the person. Can I just read that again? I just want to sit there. Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing outside of a person can enter and contaminate a person in God's sight. Rather, the things that come out of a person contaminate the person. After leaving the crowd, he entered a house where his disciples asked him about that riddle. He said to them, don't you understand either? Don't you know that nothing from the outside that enters a person has the power to contaminate? That's because it doesn't enter into the heart, but into the stomach. And it goes out into the sewer. It's just a dramatic pause. By saying this, Jesus declared that no food 
could contaminate a person in God's sight. It's what comes out of a person that contaminates someone in God's sight, he said. It's from the inside, from the human heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual sins, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil actions, deceit, unrestrained immorality, envy, insults, arrogance, and foolishness. All these evil things come from the inside and contaminate a person. It contaminate a person in God's sight. Jesus left that place. No, that's done. You're good. <clears throat> oh my good. Okay. Stray, remind me, remind me what you said right before we started reading. Um, that when all of your needs are met, you don't need to depend on your community. Um, and so I'm thinking about how um, drawing lines of clean and unclean are ways of determining who's in and who's out and who you can rely on and who you don't have to rely on. And if you and your two friends or whatever are are clean and everyone else is unclean, you don't you don't have to invest in community. That if you call people unclean, basically, they're outside of the 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 mm -hmm. blessing of God, or we don't have to worry about them. Correct. If we're, the Bible, the Bible says we're ministers of reconciliation, and so in our mm -hmm. in our actions of building walls and pushing people to the outside, we're actually contributing to the lack of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Definitely in so many deep ways what i find interesting about this text is how mark has to describe what the pharisees do and did that is the very first and yeah. so <clears throat> um textually if you look at it either that was added much later yeah, or it yeah. was written for a time period after the Pharisees, so after the temple destruction. I've heard the defense that that's added in because the people were not Jews. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it could be all true, right? It's all true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Why? But why? Why would it be in there if it? if it was a very early writing and also if the, if the readers were Jews. Right. What's really interesting though, is Romans, the Greek people, the Roman people, they weren't dirty people. Say more. Well, they had, you know, they, they literally had, like public baths they had water like they had bringing water in so you think about the water systems that they had developed over a long period of time the baths so, the fountains and the right aqueducts right. So, and, yeah. right so so all of that is present right and so to say that this was actually just solely written for Greek people. I think that a Greek person would have understood not washing your hands before you eat. Of course. That wouldn't have had to be in like this huge explanation. Maybe it was to just show how ludicrous that is. 
to not that not just to be a part of your maybe common ritual and you had to ritualize it and then exclude people for washing their hands when my kids don't wash their hands before dinner i say hey go wash your hands right i don't sit there and make some big theological treatise over my daughters are going to some special place outside of heaven because they don't wash their hands. <laughs> Fair. No, no, I just had that thought. Yeah. Romans were clean people. I mean, they were white togas, so like. They had to be somewhat clean. <laughs> Any I, more thoughts I, on this one? I'm not sure. Oh, I think that there's a lot to it. It's it's a lot of the same of what we've talked about before, where it comes to, you know, putting so many f what they call fences around the Torah, where you have the Torah and the Torah, the word of God is meaningful. But then we start just building more and more legal rules and regulations. And they call that putting fences around the Torah. So eventually you have so many rules. Who knows the rules? Right. So one of these that I've thought of over the years is you can't walk more than a thousand paces on the Sabbath. You know, they didn't they didn't necessarily have their, you know, odometer their, out. their odometers on their watches. You know, I have this that tells me, hey, 10,000 paces today. Good job. Right. Well, on th you know, it, 999. Take a seat. So so they they had this like rule this fence around the Torah that to keep you from not working on the Sabbath mm -hmm. to not break the Sabbath is don't walk more than a thousand paces. Don't heal. Can't heal a sick person on the Sabbath. You have to just let them perish or survive till Monday, you know, or survive till Sunday. You know, I'm, I'm here um, then. So, which I think, I mean, if you look is, at, if you look at a lot of it. the whole system of the Pharisees, right the pharisaical system they were created out of a fear and necessity to not be to not be taken over again and so if their their entire national narrative is built on the premise that they were destroyed twice or three times because they didn't follow god's rules yeah and so now you have people that an occupied people now with the Roman occupation where it's the, the third or fourth time that they don't want to break any more rules because they don't want to be scattered. And so they are doing their damnedest, darndest to, you can say to damnedest. not damnedest to, to not be overtaken again. And so I think a little bit they're they're given this really awful rap of of rule rule mongering. They're they're doing the best they can what was given to them. And I think I think that is also needs to be like seen as well in the text that they really had viable arguments on why they were believing the way they are. And so mm -hmm. people today as well, they have in in their pharisaicalness they have viable arguments for being the way that they are. Um, but it's when it came to excluding people, that's, that's when it got, they got into trouble.
Yeah, so I'm going to bring up something here because I, I don't think it's too far-fetched what these people are dealing with. It directly relates to what we deal with today, meaning that, you know, there were times in the church that, you know, the unclean were considered like, okay, the Calvinists are going to take us over, right? And so we had to, like, teach this, you know, micro version of theology to make sure that the Calvinists didn't take us over. But that would have been or, awful. Yeah. Well, religious people are a pain in my butt anyway. So like, I just, I just look at, Hey, let's talk about Calvinism. No, let's not. Let's just move on. Um, and, and I think that when, well, so I know, so, then it was the left behind people. They were right? left behind in school. You you were left behind in school. Is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> so then it was the left behind people. All the apocalyptic people came out. You know. Then we had like these these cards that would come in the mail. You know, like the, with Jesus on a horse and tanks. You know, attacking whoever. You know, next to Jesus with, you know, Apache helicopters, they were the locust, you know, like flying over. So, you know, we had all these scare tactics or all these like, like micro theologies to make sure that some group wasn't going to take us. Cause it's just a bunch of religious garbage just being thrown at each other. It's like taking, you know, dog crap and, uh, and throwing it at each other and losing the whole point of Christianity. And losing the whole point of the love of Christ when we're sitting there. So I just love when somebody, you know, some new person will come. It hasn't happened very often. It resonates necessarily. But theology is really important to me. I'd like to sit down with you and have a cup of coffee. Talk theology. There's the door. You know, I can tell you right now that our church is probably not the place for you <laughs> because what you want to do is you actually just want me to, you want to tell me your theology and how possibly I'm wrong. That's usually how those conversations go because I have not met very many people that theology is really important to them um, in the big picture of their lives. So I think theology is important. But I can sit down with you and say, this is what I believe. What do you believe? Let's talk about it. Let's hash it out. You know, is there anything that we disagree with? And if we do, awesome. Let's talk about it. Right? I'm not sitting there like making a judgment call on your life because you believe something different than I do. Or maybe I am. I don't know. And I don't tell you. I don't know. But it, but what I what I just, what I think is that we, we throw theology at each other and we micro our theology at each other. And we lose the whole heart of the message. And I think that's what this whole passage is about, is you give lip service to God and you talk about the trappings of the table, whether there's bacon with your eggs. Basically, that's what that passage is about. Don't have bacon with your eggs. That's the Jews can't eat bacon, right? So... So they they say things like that, but they lost the love of Christ in their hearts, the love of God in their hearts. Okay, so somebody's sitting across from you eating bacon. Okay, can you still love them? 
Can you still no. care for them? That's like giving lip service to God and not and not having it expressed from the heart. If we read one more section, we can yeah. hopscotch uh, over the top of the Fiend at 4,000. Good. Let's just read it. We don't even have to comment. <laughs> oh, no more, Rob. 24. I think it's in there somewhere. There we go. There it is. You just Shrey, let that read play. it for us. Oh, go ahead, Shrey. Jesus left that place and went into the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know that he had entered a house, but he couldn't hide. In fact, a woman whose young daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard about him right away. She came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, Syrophoenician by birth. She begged Jesus to throw the demon out of her daughter. He responded, the children have to be fed first, isn't it isn't right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. But she answered, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Good answer, he said. Go on home. The demon has already left your daughter. When she returned to her house, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. You read that because it had all the hard words. <laughs> Throw that back up there, Rob. Let's make a few comments and then we have to shut it down for but this is an important one. So, so what's here in the center? The hardship with this passage is the idea of calling people outside of uh, the Jewish culture dogs. And that's yeah. what actually they would call them as dogs. And so that's what, that's what Jesus is really responding to. And to have a woman in the culture stand up for herself mm -hmm. in yeah. front of a powerful Jewish man, I think is the complete scene of this text that um, not only is she Greek, Syrophoenician, not only is she just considered a dog by, by the Jews at the time, but she is a woman and she stands up and gives a good answer. Mm. But also the healing wasn't contingent upon her answer. Mm -hmm. The the demon is already left because she had the faith to go there and to, to kneel down to fall. Those are my thoughts. Yeah. Well, um, if we continue to leave that up there, Jesus left that place and went into this region. That number one, that region is like off limits. And so he's crossing this this boundary that, well, I guess it wasn't totally off limits because both groups lived there, didn't they? What were you going to say, Sheree? I have two thoughts. Um one is that um, we just read a passage about what makes a person unclean, right? right. Um, so it stood out to me that um, the daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit. Um, so I think the text has already given us a way to think about that um, and connecting those two stories together. The other thing I was thinking about... Um, one of my college professors taught a class called humor in the bible and um with this passage um 
suggested, like, if we view the conversation as banter, it changes the whole tone. Hmm. Okay. And I kind of like a Jesus that banters. Oh, totally. <clears throat> but also, like, in that whole thing, a woman that is strong enough to banter back with a man. Right. 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 In a time period. I mean, that's that's even bigger of than, than just saying that she's just talking back. She's actually being sardonic back. Right. Go ahead and throw that back up there, Rob. <laughs> I'm I'm looking at this and wondering would the church at Rome exist without this passage? Would the church at Rome exist without this passage? Say more. Well, he's crossing he's crossing a boundary. And he's there talking to Gentiles. Yes. So this shows me something that Jesus is willing to definitely cross over into a territory that the mm -hmm. message then goes beyond the Jews. Well, we already saw like this is the second time that I'm remembering. Uh, the first was uh, Legion. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this is at least the second time, if not, if not more. Okay, so there's more stories. So if you if you take those stories and put them together, is my little theory there correct? If those stories didn't happen in yeah. a gospel, yeah. So connect those stories together. I don't know if the church at Rome would really would really exist. The church outside of outside of outside of yeah because it's it's Jesus doing these actions mm -hmm. and if you think about the writings that maybe they focused on in the you know first second century of the church um, it would have been these these writings yeah I mean it could even be because this was written after Paul right yeah. And so could it, the been idea, it, it could have been influenced. I'm not sure where else Seraphonician comes up in in the New, New Testament. Right. But I think we have lots of instances where Jesus was stepping outside of cultural boundaries. Mm -hmm. There's another text that say, um, I, I came only for the Jews. And I forget where that's at. Um it, it kind of contradicts everything around everywhere. And so you really need to take a hard look at that passage. Um, the idea is that Jews first and then the Gentiles, the dogs in this, in this scenario, but you have, I know of like Jesus specifically with a uh, legion was thrown out of a Gentile man. The, the Syrophoenician woman, um, the the Roman ruler's pederast boy servant right. was healed, raised from the dead. I'm trying to think of other 
other non-Jewish healings that Jesus had. I can't think of many more besides that. Well, you can you can see that this is to to talk about more about what Sharia was saying. You can see that this passage definitely is a banter. Um, number one, right before this, it's it's being talked about that what comes out of your heart is what matters. What comes out of you, not what you put inside, what comes out of you matters. So he couldn't possibly have been dissing on this woman and calling her a dog. Um, that wasn't culturally connected to something that he was trying to dismantle. Mm -hmm. And in her answer, he says, Lord, even the dogs in her answer under the table, eat the children's crumbs. Good answer. Go on home. The demon has left your daughter. So it goes back to what Sheree is saying, banter, but it also goes back to the begging. She begged Jesus to throw the demon out of her daughter. So obviously she had some kind of glimpse of hope or confidence that Jesus was who he said he was going to be yeah, or is. And basically like grants the request. Any more thoughts, Trey? You got anything? Nope. That's a hard passage to leave on, but I think, uh, Rob, you can pull that down. I think we're going to stop there because then we get to skip over the feeding of the 4,000 next week, right? And go right into that next story. So that's exciting. Thanks for suggesting that, Jake. Well, with that, um, thanks, everybody, for joining us. And uh, you can tune in next week, same time, same place. Uh, again, if you want to connect in, make some comments on social media. Um, go to our give site, give financially, however you want to. Uh, just participate with us in some way. All right, with that, good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us.